This is the On All Cylinders Podcast. Powered by Summit Racing. Your host for today is Paul Sokolis with special guest, Studebaker collector, enthusiast, and racer, Malcolm Berry. Here we go. Welcome to another edition of the On All Cylinders Podcast. I'm your host for today, Paul Sokolis. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about all things Studebaker. And the reason why is kind of a kind of a funny story. I went to the Hot Rod Power Tour as it stopped in Dayton, Ohio a couple of weeks ago. And among the sea of like top-tier show cars, hot rods, vintage classic muscle cars, I see this cool little Studebaker station wagon. And it's really neat on two fronts because as you walk up behind the car, you notice it has a sliding back roof. So the back of the roof actually slides up above the front seats in case you like wanted to move a llama or a grandfather clock or whatever. Uh, you'd have the room up top to do it. So that was cool, but as I walked around to the front of the car, I noticed under the hood was a supercharged Studebaker V8. So suffice it to say, I wanted to get the inside scoop on this car, but alas, I couldn't find the owner. But it was such a neat car, I decided to do the article anyway. I posted it on the On All Cylinders blog. If you want to see it, just go to onallcylinders.com and type in Studebaker into the search bar. I'm sure it'll pop up right away. And lo and behold, the owner actually commented on that story and said, Hey man, sorry I missed you, but uh, you know, here's my contact information. Let's get in touch and talk about uh, Studebakers. And it turns out this guy is Malcolm Berry, and he's a walking encyclopedia of Studebakers and owns a handful of them. So with that, Malcolm, thank you for taking the time to talk Studebakers with us today. Well, it's my pleasure. I've been doing uh, Studebakers a long time, and um, I still enjoy it, and I feel uh, uh, like I've been really lucky to be able to do something um, I guess I'm pretty good at. For such a long period of time. Well, let's go ahead and start from there. Is it fair to call you a Studebaker guy? Oh, yeah, definitely. I got seven. Seven? Wow. Uh, yeah, that's no joke. Um, we'll get to those cars in, in a moment. But I'm really curious as to what got you into Studebakers. Like, what made you fall in love with South Bend? Well, uh, I started getting Studebakers in high school in the 50s. And um, I just wanted them because it was different than everybody else had. And uh, we were kind of traffic light racers. They were very competitive with the other uh, common makes. And uh, you, you could usually be very successful if you were uh, traffic light racing with uh, Ford's and Chevy's and Plymouth's. The Oldsmobiles were a bit of a problem. But, yeah, I just want something different. Well, I'd be hard-pressed to find a hot rodder that would uh, disagree with that sentiment. So let's talk about some of your cars. You said you have seven of them. Is that over the decades or currently? No, right now. <laughs> nice. Well, we'll we'll get to the fleet in a moment. But uh, let's just talk about the one that got this whole call started in the first place. That Studebaker Lark Wagoneer Daytona. Do, do I have that name right? Yes. Got more names than any other kind of car. The Studebaker uh, Lark Daytona Wagoneer. Uh, the Studebaker is obvious. It's a brand. And then a Lark is the model of the car, and the Daytona is the trim level, and a Wagoneer means it's a sliding roof. And now how long have you owned it? Since 69. And from what I understand, you've, you've modified that car a bit, uh, and it starts underneath the hood. That's not the Studebaker's original engine? No, it's not. That's actually out of a 64. A friend of mine bought a, uh, a 64 two-door hardtop, R2, and he broke a rod. And then uh, me and a friend of mine, drag racers, we wanted to build a Studebaker, serious Studebaker drag race car. We wanted a Wagoneer because it was heavier. The rear end was heavier to the front. And uh, and so we had to, we bought the car specifically to race in a specific class in HRA, L-Stock Automatic. And so then when we bought the, the remains of this broken engine, we repaired it, put it in the Studebaker, and we raced in early 70s, uh, 70, 71. And um, then he wanted to get out of it, and uh, so I bought him out, and I've had it ever since. So it was a, just a serious drag race car. It's all it's for. And then in the, in the late 
late seventies. Uh, I've redone it several times, but uh, in the seventies, I uh, late seventies, I started driving it more and more on the street. And then in about the late eighties, I I took it a clear part and redid it again, and I made it. It was a automatic R2. That's a supercharged 289 cubic inch Studebaker motor, automatic. And I ran Al- we ran Alstock automatic with that car. Then when I made it to drive more on the street, I wanted to go cross country a lot in it, so I made it. I uh, I built a, a five-speed, put a Ford Mustang five-speed in it, because I've driven cross-country several times. It's been, uh, oh, I drove it to uh, Dover, Delaware, Sacramento, California, Phoenix, Arizona, Minneapolis, Asheville, North Carolina. It, it's been everywhere, all over the country. Are there any other cool uh, modifications or upgrades you've done to this Wagoneer? It's a five-speed with uh, air conditioning, and they never had air conditioning in the dash. It was always an underdash air conditioning. So that air conditioner in there is not a Studebaker unit, but it is a um, period. It's from it's a 63 or 64 unit that somebody, a friend of mine, had up in his attic all those years. And when I was building it in the late 80s, when I was redoing the station wagon again, I made it a five-speed and I put air in it So because I, I knew I was going to be driving cross-country a lot in it. Let's rewind a bit. You said the Wagoneer spent its early days in your care on the drag strip as kind of like a dedicated track car. How successful was it? Uh, did you win a lot of races? No, uh, once in a while, but not not commonly. Our biggest problem was the, the torque converter. We had a stock torque converter, and supercharger engine doesn't make uh, horsepower go thirty five hundred or four thousand. And so you have to have a high stall torque converter. So when you leave the starting line, you're you're up in that range. You need a four thousand stall torque converter. So you're leaving on boost, which that really hurt it. But uh, anyway, we uh, it was still a, it was a lot of fun and. Uh, and I still I race it uh, at, at least once a year, maybe a couple times a year, up till last year over at Kilcare, our local drag strip here. And uh, and then this year I changed. I, I've, I've got another. I've got a, a R2 supercharged Avani. Well, actually, I got two of them. And one of them's an automatic, and that's better for bracket racing. So I've been racing it the last couple of years. That brings us to a really interesting point. We've been kind of dancing around the topic um, so far. But Studebaker had a couple of hot engines. And I don't think a lot of folks know that. Um, can you talk a little bit about like the R1s and the R2s and the supercharged engines that were coming out of the South Bend plant? Sure. Uh, Studebaker came out with a V8 in 1951, and they were 232 cubic inches. And then over the years, they had even a smaller one. They had a short stroke, 224 cubic inch. And, and then about 56, they, they went, they had a, a 259 cubic inch. And, you could get a six-cylinder, and they were flathead sixes up to 61, and then they had a overhead valve six-cylinder. But the V8s were kind of their mainstay forever, and they had the 259 and the 289 at later on in the years, and uh, uh, that's what they made their performance engines out of. So they had the 289 inch against uh, all along, starting in 56. 57, the Golden Hawk, that was a 289 with a McCullough supercharger on it as opposed to a Paxton. They're basically the same supercharger, but the McCullough has a variable speed pulley on the front, and the, uh, the Paxtons have a fixed ratio, uh, just the pulley doesn't change it. The, the McCullough then goes in and out. So in 57 and 58, the Golden Hawks had, had that um, supercharged engine, and then they didn't have that anymore. And then in 63, they made a push, and they brought up the R1. That was a 289 with a, a little better cam and an AFB carburetor, and... Uh, it was 240 horsepower. That's the R1. Then the next engine up was a R2. That's a 289 with that same better cam and um, the packs of supercharger. And then they lowered the compression. Uh, uh, though the R1s also had 10 and a quarter to one 
compression. And the R2 is for the supercharger. They lowered it down to 9 to 1. So if you had an R2, you had a 289 with a pretty good cam and a supercharger and uh, 9 to 1 compression. And they were supposed to be 289 horsepower. And commonly now, if you rebuild them and use modern techniques, they're, they're typically 300 to 310 horsepower pretty easily. And they, they do really well. They're very durable, and uh, they're just they're great. And uh, both of my Avani's are R2s. My wagon's an R2. Was that supercharged R2 considered the top dog performance engine from Studebaker at the time? No. They made a very few R3s. And R3 had special heads of the different casting, bigger ports, bigger valves, and a bigger cam. And they were supposed to be 335 horsepower, but numbers kind of vary about how many they made. Everybody thinks they made around 140 of those engines, and they have a B designation on your on your number on your block. If it has a B, it's a, uh, an R3, and they are extremely rare and um, very expensive now. But if you got an R, there are some R3s around, and there's nobody got one that doesn't know what they have because they made so few. They made uh, only made nine R3 Avantes. And they only made one R3 Lark. Now, they did make an R4. That was two four barrels. It was like an R3. Uh, the early ones were 90,000 over. They were 304 cubic inch. And uh, for some reason, they went from 304 back down to 60 over, which makes them 299 cubic inch. And then the R4s, uh, they've got a big cam and two AFB carburetors. Now, for folks listening closely to your answer there, they might have noticed that you used the word rare quite a bit in that response. Um, which leads me to wonder what kind of part support is out there for, you know, 50, 60, 70 year old Studebakers. Is it easy to get, for example, engine parts for these cars? Uh, parts are, are easy. That's a real common. The common stuff, bearings and pistons and rings and gasket sets, that, that's no problem at all. And some of the castings are hard. Well, like your R3 heads, they're impossible to find. A, set of R, a good set of R3 heads, maybe $10,000 because they're just, uh, they're a special casting. But as far as regular uh, replacement parts for the engine, that's no problem. And the regular engine, because they had a, they had forged cranks and forged rods, and um, the aftermarket rod companies do make aftermarket rods for Studebaker V8. So if you really want to push it, you probably need to change your rods. But there are there's Studebaker V8s that commonly have six or seven hundred horsepower, and they're only two eighty nine cubic inches. Yeah, I was actually surprised to find that myself. Um, in doing some research before our phone call, I went over to uh, our partner Summit Racing's website uh, at summitracing.com, and I was amazed by how many parts were available uh, for the Studebaker V8. You know, summitracing.com's got this really neat feature where instead of searching by like the year, make, and model of the car, like you know, 1969 Chevrolet Camaro, you can actually search by engine manufacturer too. So if you're just looking for engine parts, you can go to the search by make engine and there it is, Studebaker. Then you you select um, the family of engines, in this case, Studebaker V8, and then you select the displacement and there you go. And, um, you know, when I took off the displacement filter and just searched by the Studebaker V8 family, I mean, there were several hundred parts available for those engines. But let me ask you from like a restoration standpoint, uh, we're talking sheet metal, emblems, radio knobs. Is some of that stuff available on the aftermarket? No, much much of that stuff is reproduced, emblems and stuff like that. The only difficult thing, uh, it's getting harder and harder to find is sheet metal. Front fenders, uh, for the for the Hawk uh, CK bodies, that's uh, like a 53 to 64. The coops, the coops are hard tops. The front fenders for those are just, they're just gold. If you've got a new set, you could probably get, I don't know, $1,500 a piece for them. Maybe, maybe a lot more than that. Sheet metal is going to be the problem sooner or later. 
Yeah, and that's not unique among Studebakers either. Um, certainly the high-volume cars, you know, the uh, the Camaros and Mustangs of the world, there's plenty of aftermarket sheet metal, OEM reproduction doors, fenders, trunk pans. Um, you can get that stuff for those cars, but any low-volume car without that aftermarket support, you know, that original sheet metal is going to be hard to come by. But that kind of leads me to my next question. You start talking about uh, finding the original parts. What's the Studebaker community like? I mean, are there there are shows? Are there swap meets? Um, are there online forums and communities out there just uh, solely for Studebaker fans? Oh yeah, oh yeah. There is a Studebaker Drivers Club. They have uh, websites and uh, Studebaker Addicts. That's uh, the Studebaker Drivers Club and Studebaker Addicts. StudebakerDriversClub.com, and I believe Studebaker Addicts has a Facebook group. But then you just start searching for uh, Studebaker related forums, and there are a lot of them. And there are specific Studebaker shows and events too. Oh yeah, I go to. I used to go to all of them, no matter where they were. That's why. That's how I ended up driving to Sacramento. The national meet was in Sacramento, so I drove out there. Interesting. So there are a ton of people out there that really just like these cars. Uh, I think there's eleven, twelve thousand people in the Studebaker Drivers Club. There's a whole community of these people, and and about everybody that really is into it knows each other. It's very social, seeing people that do the same thing for for many, many years. That's good to hear, because those uh, forums and communities and clubs are really the lifeblood of this hobby. Being able to pick up the phone and call somebody and say, I'm having trouble fixing this carburetor linkage, or I'm overheating at a certain highway speed. Being able to talk to folks that are dealing with the exact same problem is hugely beneficial, whether you're talking about Studebakers or Ducati motorcycles. But uh, let's switch gears just a tad, because I'm dying to know what else is in your garage. You said you have seven Studebakers. We already know about the Wagoneer, and you've alluded to some Avantes. Malcolm, what else do you got tucked away in your shop there? I've got a 1937 Coupe Express. That's like an El Camino. It's a car-looking front end with a pickup truck bed. They're just extremely rare, and then I've got a, uh, uh, I'm doing a 53 Studebaker Coupe. Uh, it's a champion, so that means it's flat at six. But I'm uh, going to do a lot of special things, so I built up. I'm building an engine on this. Sinclair College has a really great engine program, and I've been in it for several years, so I'm building an engine for it down there. So it's going to be a flathead six with a stainless steel tubing headers and a Paxton supercharger and HCI distributor. Five-speed, bigger brakes, it's going to be uh, everything. That's my 53. And then uh, I've got a 55 big truck. It's the biggest, the heaviest truck Stu Baker made in 55. It's a two-and-a-half-ton dump stick bed. It uh, it was sold new by Marshall Brothers Stu Baker over here close to my house. So it's been in this neighborhood all its life. Then I've got a 1960 Stu Baker four-wheel drive. Four-wheel drive Studebakers are extremely rare. They only made about 350 through all the years they made, and they made about four or five years, and mine was a Navy, built for the Navy specifically, and they only built 65 of them. My, my four-wheel drive is a Navy truck. And then uh, I've got, uh, well, I've got the two Avantis, and both they're both R2s. One, one of them I made it a five-speed, the other one's an automatic. And then my 63 station wagon, which I drive more miles than anything I own. It's a 63 Wagoneer sliding roof. That's the one you saw on the power tour. Now, that is a pretty impressive motor pool, whether you're from South Bend or not. Do you have one that's your favorite, one that you like, you know, maybe slightly more than the rest? Oh, they're all members of the family. Because, uh, and, and so many people, I know a lot of people in the same deal that uh, this is not a hobby. This is a way of life. The, the National Studebaker Meet, Studebaker Drivers Club Meet is going to be in South Bend next year. And I wanted to take my 53 to that meet. 
and the, the, the national meet is in uh, in South Bend every five years. And then it goes to different parts of the country years in between. So it uh, just keeps moving around. Like this year, it's in Indianapolis, and I hate it that I'm missing it because it's so close. Okay, so I'm genuinely curious about this. You're obviously a Studebaker guy through and through, but to be frank, Studebaker hasn't built an automobile in decades, right? So do you have any cars, classic, collectible, or otherwise, that aren't made by Studebaker? I've got a 59 Corvette. Yeah, I've had it 54, let's uh, see, yeah, 54 years I've had it. And uh, then I've got, a, also I've got an 86 T-Top Buick, that's a turbocharged Buick, I've got one. i got one of them. The Corvette was the same deal, it was a race car. I bought it to race, and uh, I raced it a couple of years, and then after I quit racing, it set for a couple of years, and then I, I've been driving it for a lot of years. And then Buick, I just bought it because it was so unusual. I bought it new, and it's an 86, and it's good, and it's got, 25,000 miles on it. It's a new car. It's never been on the weather. <laughs> it's nice to see that you are indeed diversifying your proverbial portfolio there. Now, let's uh, rack the focus out a little bit. Um, I'm surely a lot of our listeners don't know a whole heck of a lot about Studebaker as a company. Are there any interesting tidbits or historical footnotes that you think everybody who wants to learn about Studebaker should know about? Well, the company started in the 1850s, and they were wagon manufacturers. And uh, a small company, uh, several brothers went together and had this company. They built they built wagons, and, and that was about it. Well, they were making maybe 20 wagons a week. And when the Civil War started, they got the contract to do the wagons for the North. So then they went from... Um, Oh, a few wagons a week to maybe a thousand or fifteen hundred a week. I'm not really sure, but they were big manufacturers. And then after the war, they made uh, Conestoga wagons for the pioneers going west, and they made all kind of carriages and wagons and buggies, and they made everything until the turn of the century. And then in 1902, they started building cars also. In the first two years, their cars were all electrics. They only made electric. They didn't make a, a gasoline car until, I think, uh, 1904. Oh, that's cool. I didn't know that. Studebaker, the leading edge of EV tech at the turn of the century. Then they made both horse-drawn vehicles and um, gasoline-powered vehicles until about 1920. Then they quit doing the horse vehicles, and then they built uh, cars. And mostly they were, Studebaker in the 30s, they were big cars. And then the... Um, they come out with a more a less expensive line. The Champion was a car they brought in the '39 to get get into another market, and then they had those until they went out of business in, in the United States in December of 1963, which was 64 model year. And after Studebaker closed the South Bend plant, I believe manufacturing moved to Hamilton, Ontario, up in Canada, where Studebaker production lasted until 1966. Malcolm, I've been uh, meaning to ask you, you seem to be pretty well-connected in the Studebaker community. How's the local scene? Um, is there a strong local Studebaker Club chapter around you? Uh, we have the Studebaker Club and the Packer Club put on a orphan car show every August, and lots of Studebakers show up. But there's Studebaker. We have a real active Studebaker Club chapter here in southwest Ohio, and we, we do activities, go to car shows, and we do a lot of stuff together, so... There, there's plenty of Studebaker activity, and there's more Studebakers out there than people realize. Yeah, kind of circling back a little bit, you talked about you know parts availability and you know the the community's willingness to help. Would you say that these cars are easy to work on? Oh yeah, yeah, they're they're basic cars like everything in the fifties. They're they're basic. They have no computers. They, they they're all 
basic cars. So going a step further, is a Studebaker a good car for someone to learn on? Um, would you recommend the Studebaker as a, a good entry-level car for the gearhead who really wants to dip their toe in the uh, classic car hobby? Oh, absolutely, because they're, they're a lot cheaper than a lot of the collector cars. And parts are really available, and, well, cars are really available, too. They're easy to uh, easy to find out about, especially but with the Internet. There's a whole bunch of Studebaker people on there. And it's Studebaker Addicts and the Studebaker Drivers Club, and there's all kind of forums out there. And uh, they're just like every other car forum. You just have to pay attention to what you're reading because it is on the Internet, you know. Now, Malcolm, before we started recording this interview, you mentioned to me casually that uh, the big national meet this year is in Indianapolis, Indiana, which by the time this podcast airs, uh, that date will have come and gone. But next year, you said the big national meet will be at the Studebaker homeland in South Bend, Indiana. Is it fair to say that that's going to be a pretty big deal on the Studebaker calendar? Like, if you're at all interested in Studebakers, this is a not-miss kind of event? Yeah, they will probably have four or 500 Studebakers at the national meeting in Annapolis. But the biggest one is always the South Bend, because people think that the cars are made in South Bend. It's kind of a homecoming thing, although there's nothing left there. Well, there are, there are a couple items still there, but... But uh, next year, the South, the National be in South Bend, that'll be their biggest one. They'll, they typically have four or five hundred. That's good to hear because you know I, I, you don't see Studebakers a whole lot, and it seems like every time uh, I know I'm at a car show, a Studebaker pulls up. You know, folks kind of just smile because it's the, everyone likes a Studebaker. And case in point, I opened this podcast with uh, the story that uh, you know when I was at the Power Tour surrounded by all these high-performance hot rods and classic muscle cars, it was your Studebaker Wagoneer that was drawing the crowd and drawing people's attention. Somebody told me there was another Wagoneer there. No way. Yeah. So do you agree with my assessment that, you know, people just like seeing Studebakers on the road? Well, what's really interesting, though, is when I go cross-country, like I went to Sacramento to a show, and then after the show, I went down to Bakersfield and over the Grand Canyon to Petrified Forest, and, and people see you out there with Ohio plates on. They can't believe that you drove here from Ohio. And in reality, that's, that's no big deal. Yeah, since um, you brought it up, I, I forgot to ask earlier, what's that Wagoneer like driving on the highway? Does it handle okay? Oh, sure. It's just, it's a regular 50, 50s and 60s cars. They're all about the same. And I'm sure that that manual Mustang five-speed transmission helps a lot with uh, engine speed and RPM on the, on the highway. I just, I'm just picturing all the smiles on folks' faces as they pass your car on the interstate. That's got to be a really neat experience. Yeah. Well, Malcolm, we've talked quite a bit about Studebakers. It's been an absolutely fascinating topic. Uh, if you're listening on the podcast and want some more information, Malcolm referenced the Studebaker Addicts Facebook group, along with the Studebaker Drivers Club. Their website is just studebakerdriversclub.com. Thank you so much for your time, sir. This has been a, a really eye-opening talk, and I hope someday I can make the drive to Dayton and see some more of your Studebakers. Okay, thank you. Have a good day. This has been the On All Cylinders podcast. Powered by Summit Racing. Check out new episodes coming soon at onallcylinders.com. Onallcylinders.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time.